Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of The Life and Adventures of Santa Claus by L. Frank Baum. Volume 4 Santa's Manhood Continued Chapter 11 How the First Stockings Were Hung by the Chimneys When you remember that no child until Santa Claus began his travels had ever known the pleasure of possessing a toy, you will understand how joy crept into the houses of those who had been favored with a visit from the good man, and how they talked of him day by day in loving tones, and were honestly grateful for his kindly deeds. It is true that great warriors and mighty kings and clever scholars of the day were often spoken of by these people, but no one of them was so greatly loved as Santa Claus, because none other was so unselfish as to devote himself to making others happy. For a generous deed lives longer than a great battle or a king's decree or a scholar's essay, because it spreads and leaves its mark on all nature and endures through many generations. The bargain made with the Nook Prince changed the plans of Claus for all future time. For being able to use the reindeer on but one night each year, he decided to devote all other days to the manufacture of playthings, and on Christmas Eve to carry them to the children of the world. But a year's work would, he knew, result in a vast accumulation of toys, so he resolved to build a new sledge that would be larger and stronger and better fitted for swift travel than the old and clumsy one. His first act was to visit the Gnome King, with whom he had made a bargain to exchange three drums, a trumpet, and two dolls for a pair of fine steel runners, curled beautifully at the ends. For the Gnome King had children of his own, who, living in the hollows under the earth in mines and caverns, needed something to amuse them. In three days the steel runners were ready, and when Claus brought the playthings to the Gnome King, his majesty was so greatly pleased with them that he presented Claus with a string of sweet-toned sleighbills in addition to the runners. "'These will please Glossy and Flossy,' said Claus as he jingled the bells and listened to their merry sound. "'But I should have two strings of bells, one for each deer.' "'Bring me another trumpet and a toy cat,' replied the king." And you shall have a second string of bells like the first. It is a bargain, cried Claus, and he went home again for toys. The new sledge was carefully built, the nooks bringing plenty of strong but thin boards to use in its construction. Claus made a high rounding dashboard to keep off the snow cast behind by the fleet hooves of the deer, and he made high sides to the platform so that many toys could be carried. And finally, he mounted the sledge upon the slender steel runners made by the Gnome King. It was certainly a handsome sledge, big and roomy. Claus painted it in bright colors, although no one was likely to see it during his midnight journeys. And when all was finished, he sent for Glossy and Flossy to come and look at it. The deer admired the sledge, but gravely declared that it was too big and heavy for them to draw. We will pull it over the snow to be sure, said Glossy. But we would not pull it fast enough to enable us to visit faraway cities and villages and return to the forest by daybreak. Then I must add two more deer to my team, declared Claus after a moment's thought. The Nook Prince allowed you as many as ten. Why not use them all? asked Flossie. Then we could speed like lightning and leap to the highest roofs with ease. A team of ten reindeer? cried Claus delightedly. That will be splendid. Please return to the forest at once, and select eight deer as like yourselves as possible. And you must all eat of the Kaza plant to become strong, 
and of the grawl plant to become fleet of foot, and of the marbon plant that you may live long to accompany me on my journeys. Likewise it would be well for you to bathe in the pool of Nares, which the lovely Queen Zerline declares will render you rarely beautiful. Should you perform these duties faithfully, there is no doubt that on next Christmas Eve my ten reindeer will be the most powerful and beautiful steeds the world has ever seen. So Glossy and Flossy went to the forest to choose their mates, and Claus began to consider the question of a harness for all of them. In the end he called upon Peter Nook for assistance, for Peter's heart is as kind as his body is crooked, and he is remarkably shrewd as well, and Peter agreed to furnish strips of tough leather for the harness. This leather was cut from the skin of lions that had reached such an advanced age that they had died naturally, and on one side was tawny hair while the other was cured to the softness of velvet by the deaf nooks. When Claus received these strips of leather, he sewed them neatly into a harness for the ten reindeer, and it proved strong and serviceable, and lasted him for many years. The harness and sledge were prepared at odd times, for Claus devoted most of his days to making toys. These were now much better than the first ones had been, for the immortals often came to his house to watch him work and offer suggestions. It was Nessiel's idea to make some of the toys say Mama and Papa, it was thought of the nooks to put a squeak inside the lambs, so that when a child squeezed them they would say, Ah! And the fairy queen advised Claus to put whistles in the birds so that they could be made to sing, and wheels on the horses so that children could draw them around. Many animals perished in the forest from one cause or another, and their fur was brought to Claus so that he might cover with it the small images of beasts he had made for playthings. A merry Ryle suggested that Claus make a donkey with a nodding head, which he did, and afterwards found that it amused the little ones immensely, and so the toys grew in beauty and attractiveness every day, until they were the wonder of even the immortals. When another Christmas Eve drew near, there was a monster load of beautiful gifts for the children ready to be loaded upon the big sledge. Claus filled three sacks to the brim and tucked every corner of the sledge box full of toys. Then at twilight... The ten reindeer appeared, and Flossie introduced them all to Claus. They were racer and pacer, reckless and speckles, fearless and peerless, and ready and steady, who, with Glossie and Flossie, made up the ten who have traversed the world these hundreds of years with their generous master. They were all exceedingly beautiful, with slender limbs and spreading antlers, velvety dark eyes, and smooth coats of fawn color spotted with white. Claus loved them at once, and has loved them ever since, for they are loyal friends and have rendered him priceless service. The new harness fitted them nicely, and soon they were all fastened to the sledge by twos, with Glossy and Flossy in the lead. These wore the strings of sleigh bells, and were so delighted with the music they made that they kept prancing up and down to make the bells ring. Claus now seated himself in the sledge, and drew a warm robe over his knees and his fur cap over his ears, and crackled his long whip as a signal to start. Instantly the ten leapt forward and were away like the wind, while Jolly Claus laughed gleefully to see them run, and shouted a song in his big hearty voice. With a ho 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 and a ha 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 and a ho ho ha ha he, now away we go over the frozen snow, as merry as can be. 
There are many joys in our load of toys, as many as a child will know will scatter them wide on our wild night ride over the crisp and sparkling snow. Now it was on the same Christmas Eve that little Margot and her brother Dick and her cousins Ned and Sarah, who were visiting in Margot's house, came in from making a snowman. Their clothes were damp and their mittens dripping, and their shoes and stockings wet through and through. They were not scolded, for Margot's mother knew the snow was melting, but they were sent to bed early that their clothes might be hung over chairs to dry. The shoes were placed on the red tiles of the hearth, where the heat from the hot embers would strike them, and the stockings were carefully hung in a row by the chimney directly over the fireplace. That was the reason that Santa Claus noticed them when he came down the chimney that night, and all the household were fast asleep. He was in a tremendous hurry, and seeing that the stockings all belonged to children, he quickly stuffed his toys into them and dashed up the chimney again, appearing on the roof so suddenly that the reindeer were astonished at his agility. "'I wish they would all hang up their stockings,' he thought as he drove to the next chimney. "'It would save me a lot of time. I could then visit more children before daybreak.' When Margot and Dick and Ned and Sarah jumped out of bed the next morning and ran downstairs to get their stockings from the fireplace, they were filled with delight to find the toys from Santa Claus inside them. In fact, I think they found more presents in their stockings than any of the children of the city had received, for Santa was in a hurry and did not stop to count the toys. Of course, they told all their little friends about it, and of course every one of them decided to hang up their stockings by the fireplace the next Christmas Eve, even Bessie Blysom, who made a visit to that city with her father, the great Lord of Lourdes, heard the story from the children, and hung her own pretty stockings by the chimney when she returned home at Christmas time. On his next trip, Santa found so many stockings hung up in anticipation of his visit that he could fill them in a jiffy and be away again in half the time required to hunt the children up and place the toys by their bedsides. The custom grew year after year and has always been a great help to Santa Claus, and with so many children to visit, he surely needs all the help we are able to give him. Chapter 12 The First Christmas Tree Claus has always kept his promise to the Nooks by returning to the Laughing Valley by daybreak, but only the swiftness of his reindeer has enabled him to do this, for he travels all over the world. He loved his work, and he loved the brisk night ride on his sledge, and the gay tinkle of the sleigh bells. And on that first trip with the ten reindeer, only Glossy and Flossie wore bells. But each year thereafter, for eight years, Claus carried presents to the children of the Gnome King, and the good-natured monarch gave him in return a string of bells for each visit, so that finally every one of the ten deer was supplied, and you may well imagine what a merry tune the bells played as the sledge sped over the snow. The children's stockings were so long that it required a great many toys to fill them, and soon Claus found that there were other things besides toys the children love. So he sent some of the fairies, who were always his good friends, into the tropics, from whence they returned with great bags full of oranges and bananas, which they had plucked from the trees. And other fairies flew to the wonderful valley of Funnyland, where delicious candies and bonbons grow thickly on the bushes, and returned laden with many boxes of sweetmeats for the little ones. These things Santa Claus, on each Christmas Eve, placed in the long stockings, together with his toys, 
and the children were glad to get them, you may be sure. There were also warm countries where there is no snow in winter, but Claus and his reindeer visited them as well as the colder climes, for there were little wheels inside the runners of his sledge that permitted it to run as smoothly over bare ground as on snow, and the children who lived in the warm countries learned to know the name of Santa Claus as well as those who lived near to the Laughing Valley. Once, just as the reindeer were ready to start on their yearly trip, a fairy came to Claus and told him of three little children who lived beneath a rude tent of skins on a broad plain where there were no trees whatever. These poor babies were miserable and unhappy, for their parents were ignorant people who neglected them sadly. Claus resolved to visit these children before he returned home, and during his ride he picked up the bushy top of a pine tree which the wind had broken off and placed it on his sledge. It was nearly morning when the deer stopped before the lonely tent of skins where the poor children lay asleep. Claus at once planted the bit of pine tree in the sand and stuck many candles on the branches. Then he hung some of his prettiest toys on the tree, as well as several bags of candy. It did not take him long to do this, for Santa Claus works quickly, and when all was ready he lit the candles and thrust his head at the opening of the tent and shouted, Merry Christmas, little ones! Ha, ha, ha! With that, he leapt onto his sledge and was out of sight before the children, rubbing the sleep from their eyes, could come out to see who had called them. You can imagine the wonder and joy of those little ones, who had never in their lives known a real pleasure before, when they saw the tree, sparkling with lights that shone brilliantly in the grey dawn, and hung with toys enough to make them happy for years to come. They joined hands and danced around the tree, shouting and laughing, until they were obliged to pause for breath. And their parents also came out to look and wonder, and thereafter had more respect and consideration for their children, since Santa Claus had honored them with such beautiful gifts. The idea of the Christmas tree pleased Claus, and so the following year he carried many of them in his sledge and set them up in the homes of poor people who seldom saw trees and placed candles and toys on the branches. Of course, he could not carry enough trees in one load for all who wanted them, but in some homes the fathers were able to get trees and have them all ready for Santa Claus when he arrived. And these the good Claus always decorated as prettily as possible, and hung with toys enough for all the children who came to see the tree lighted. These novel ideas and the generous manner in which they were carried out made the children long for that one night in the year when their friend Santa Claus should visit them. And as such anticipation is very pleasant and comforting, the little ones gleaned much happiness by wondering what would happen when Santa Claus next arrived. Perhaps you remember that stern Baron Braun who once drove Claus from his castle and forbade him to visit his children. Well, many years afterwards, when the old Baron was dead and his son ruled in his place, the new Baron Braun came to the house of Claus with his train of knights and pages and henchmen, and dismounting from his charger, bared his head humbly before the friend of children. My father did not know of your goodness and worth, he said, and therefore threatened to hang you from the castle walls, but I have children of my own who long for a visit from Santa Claus, and I have come to beg that you will favor them hereafter as you do other children. Claus was pleased with this speech, for Castle Braun was the only place he had never visited, and he gladly promised to bring presents to the Baron's children the next Christmas Eve. 
The Baron went away contented, and Claus kept his promise faithfully. Thus did this man, through very goodness, conquer the hearts of all. And it is no wonder he was ever merry and gay, for there was no home in the wide world where he was not welcomed more royally than any king. End of Part 2 Part 3 Santa's Old Age Chapter 1 The Mantle of Immortality And now we come to a turning point in the career of Santa Claus, and it is my duty to relate the most remarkable that has happened since the world began or mankind was created. We have followed the life of Claus from the time he was found as a helpless infant by the wood nymph Nasil and reared to manhood in the great forest of Bursey. And we know how he began to make toys for children, and how, with the assistance and goodwill of the immortals, he was able to distribute them to the little ones throughout the world. For many years he carried on this noble work, for the simple, hard-working life he led gave him perfect health and strength. And doubtless a man can live longer in the beautiful Laughing Valley, where there are no cares and everything is peaceful and merry, than in any other part of the world. But when many years had rolled away, Santa Claus grew old. The long beard of golden brown that once covered his cheeks and chin gradually became grey, and finally turned to pure white. His hair was white too, and there were wrinkles in the corners of his eyes, which showed plainly when he laughed. He had never been a very tall man, and now he became fat and waddled very much like a duck when he walked. But in spite of these things, he remained as lively as ever, and was just as jolly and gay, and his kind eyes sparkled as brightly as they did that first day when he came to the Laughing Valley. Yet a time is sure to come when every mortal who has grown old and lived his life is required to leave this world for another. So it is no wonder that, after Santa Claus had driven his reindeer on many and many a Christmas Eve, those staunch friends finally whispered among themselves that they had probably drawn his sledge for the last time. Then all the forest of Bursey became sad, and all the Laughing Valley was hushed. No doubt the old man's strength was at last exhausted, for he made no more toys, but lay on his bed as if in a dream. The nymph Nasil, who had reared him and become his foster mother, was still youthful and strong and beautiful, and it seemed to her but a short time since this aged, grey-bearded man had lain in her arms and smiled on her with his innocent baby lips. In this is shown the difference between mortals and immortals. It was fortunate that the great Ak came to the forest at this time. Nessiel sought him with troubled eyes and told him of the fate that threatened their friend Claus. At once the monster became grave, and he leaned upon his axe and stroked his grizzled beard thoughtfully for many minutes. Then suddenly he stood straight up and poised his powerful head with firm resolve and stretched out his great right arm as if determined on doing some mighty deed. For a thought had come to him so grand in its conception that all the world might well bow before the master woodsman and honor his name forever. It is well known that when the great Ak once undertakes to do a thing, he never hesitates an instant. And now he summoned his fleetest messengers and sent them in a flash to many parts of the earth. 
And when they were gone, he turned to the anxious Nasil and comforted her, saying, Be of good heart, my child, our friend still lives. And now run to your queen and tell her that I have summoned a council of all the immortals of the world to meet with me here in Bursey this night. If they obey and hearken unto my words, Claus will drive his reindeer for countless ages to come. At midnight there was a wondrous scene in the ancient forest of Bursey, where for the first time in many centuries the rulers of the immortals who inhabit the earth were gathered together. There was the queen of the water sprites, whose beautiful form was as clear as crystal, but continually dripped water on the bank of moss where she sat. And beside her was the king of sleep fays, who carried a wand, from the end of which a fine dust fell all around, so that no mortal could keep awake long enough to see him, as mortal eyes were sure to close in sleep as soon as the dust filled them. And next to him sat the gnome king, whose people inhabit all those regions under the earth's surface, where they guard the precious metals and jeweled stones that lie buried in the rock and ore. At his right hand stood the king of the sound imps, who had wings on his feet, for his people are swift to carry all sounds that are made. When they are busy, they carry sounds but short distances, for there are many of them, but sometimes they speed with sounds to places miles and miles away from where they are made. The king of the sound imps had an anxious and careworn face, for most people have no consideration for his imps, and especially the boys and girls make a great many unnecessary sounds which the imps are obliged to carry when they might be better employed. The next in the circle of immortals was the king of the wind demons, slender of frame, restless and uneasy at being confined to one place for even an hour. Once in a while he would leave his place and circle round the glade, and each time he did this the fairy queen was obliged to untangle the flowing locks of her golden hair and tuck them in back of her pink ears. But she did not complain, for it was not often that the king of the wind demons came into the heart of the forest. After the fairy queen, whose home you know was an old Bursey, came the king of the light elves, with his two princes, Flash and Twilight, at his back. He never went anywhere without his princes, for they were so mischievous that he dared not let them wander alone. Prince Flash bore a lightning bolt in his right hand and a horn of gunpowder in his left, and his bright eyes roved constantly, as if he longed to use his blinding flashes. Prince Twilight held a great snuffer in one hand and a big black cloak in the other, and it is well known that unless twilight is carefully watched, the snuffers or cloak will throw everything into darkness, and darkness is the greatest enemy of the king of the light elves. In addition to the immortals I have named were the king of the nooks, who had come from his home in the jungles of India, and the king of the riles, who lived among the gay flowers and luscious fruits of Valencia. Sweet Queen Zerline of the Wood Nymphs completed the circle of immortals. But in the center of the circle sat three others who possessed powers so great that all the kings and queens showed them their reverence. These were Ak, the master woodsman of the world, who ruled the forests and orchards and groves, and Kern, the master husband of the world, who ruled the grain fields and meadows and gardens, and Bo, the master mariner of the world, who ruled the seas and all the craft that floated thereon, and all other immortals are more or less subject to these three. When all had assembled, the master woodsman of the world 
stood up to address them since he himself had summoned them to the council. Very clearly he told them the story of Claus, beginning at the time when, as a baby, he had been adopted a child of the forest, and telling of his noble and generous nature and his lifelong labors to make children happy. And now, said Ak, when he had won the love of all the world, the spirit of death is hovering over him. Of all men who have inhabited the earth, none other so well deserves immortality, for such a life cannot be spared so long as there are children of mankind to miss him and to grieve over his loss. We immortals are the servants of the world, and to serve the world we were permitted in the beginning to exist. But what one of us is more worthy of immortality than this man Claus, who so sweetly ministers to the little children? He paused and glanced around the circle to find every immortal listening to him eagerly and nodding approval. Finally, the king of the wind demons, who had been whistling softly to himself, cried out, What is your desire, O Ach? To bestow upon Claus the mantle of immortality, said Ak boldly. That this demand was wholly unexpected was proved by the immortals springing to their feet and looking into each other's faces with dismay, and then upon Ak with wonder, for it was a grave matter, this parting with the mantle of immortality. The queen of the water sprites spoke in her low, clear voice, and the words sounded like raindrops, "'splashing on a window-pane. "'In all the world there is but one mantle of immortality,' she said. "'The king of the sound phase added, "'It has existed since the beginning, "'and no mortal has ever dared claim it!' "'And the master mariner of the world rose and stretched his limbs, saying, "'Only by the vote of every mortal can it be bestowed upon a mortal. "'I know all this.' answered Ak quietly. But the mantle exists, and if it was created as you say in the beginning, it was because the Supreme Master knew that some day it would be required. Until now no mortal has deserved it, but who among you dares deny that the good clause deserves it? Will you not all vote to bestow it upon him? They were silent, still looking upon one another questioningly. Of what use is the mantle of immortality unless it is worn? demanded Ak. What will it profit any one of us to allow it to remain in its lonely shrine for all time to come? Enough! cried the Gnome King abruptly. We will vote on the matter, yes or no. For my part, I vote yes. And I, said the Fairy Queen promptly, and Ak rewarded her with a smile. My people in Bursey tell me they have learned to love him. Therefore, I vote to give Claus the mantle, said the King of the Riles. He is already a comrade of the Nooks, announced the ancient king of that band. Let him have immortality. Let him have it. Let him have it, sighed the King of the Wind Demons. Why not, asked the King of the Sleep Phase. He never disturbs the slumber of my people, allow humanity. Let the good claws be immortal. I do not object, said the king of the sound imps. Nor I, 
remember the Queen of the Water Sprites. If Claus will not receive the mantle, it is clear that none other can claim it, remarked the King of the Light Elves. So let us have done with the thing for all time. The Wood Nymphs were the first to adopt him, said Queen Zerline. Of course I shall vote to make him immortal. Ak now turned to the master husband of the world, who held up his right arm and said, Yes! And the master man of the world did likewise, after which Ak, with sparkling eyes and smiling face, cried out, I thank you, fellow immortals, for all have voted yes, and so to our dear claws shall fall the one mantle of immortality that it is in our power to bestow. Let us fetch it at once! said the Fay King. I'm in a hurry. They bowed assent, and instantly the forest glade was deserted. But in a place midway between the earth and the sky was suspended a gleaming crypt of gold and platinum, a glow with soft light shed from the facets of countless gems. Within a high dome hung the precious mantle of immortality, and each immortal placed a hand on the hem of the splendid robe, and said, as with one voice, We bestow this mantle upon Claus, who is called the patron saint of children. At this the mantle came away from its lofty crypt, and they carried it to the house in the Laughing Valley. The spirit of death was crouching very near to the bedside of Claus, and as the immortals approached, she sprang up and motioned them back with an angry gesture, but when her eyes fell upon the mantle they bore, she shrank away with a low moan of disappointment and quitted that house forever. Softly and silently the immortal band dropped upon Claus the precious mantle, and it closed about him and sank into the outlines of his body and disappeared from view. It became part of his being, and neither mortal nor immortal might ever take it from him. Then the kings and queens who had wrought this great deed dispersed to their various homes, and all were well contented that they had added another immortal to their band. And Claus, well, Claus slept on, the red blood of everlasting life coursing swiftly through his veins. And on his brow was a tiny drop of water that had fallen from the ever-melting gown of the queen of the water sprites, and over his lips hovered a tender kiss that had been left by the sweet nymph Nessile, for she had stolen in when the others were gone to gaze with rapture upon the immortal form of her foster son. Chapter 2 When the World Grew Old The next morning, when Santa Claus opened his eyes and gazed around the familiar room, which he had feared he might never again see, he was astonished to find his old strength renewed and to feel the red blood of perfect health coursing through his veins. He sprang from his bed and stood where the bright sunshine came in through his window and flooded him with its merry dancing rays. He did not understand what had happened to restore him to the vigor of youth, but in spite of the fact that his beard remained the color of snow and that wrinkles still lingered in the corners of his bright eyes, old Santa Claus felt as brisk and merry as a boy of sixteen, and was soon whistling contentedly as he busied himself fashioning new toys. Then Ak came to him and told the mantle of immortality, and how Claus had won it through his love for little children. 
It made old Santa look grave for a moment to think that he had been so favoured, but it also made him glad to realise that now he need never fear being parted from his dear ones. At once he began preparations for making a remarkable assortment of pretty and amusing playthings, and in larger quantities than ever before. For now he might always devote himself to this work, he decided that no child in the world, poor or rich, should hereafter go without a Christmas gift, if he could manage to supply it. The world was new in the days when dear old Santa Claus first began toy-making, and won by his loving deeds the mantle of immortality, and the task of supplying cheering words, sympathy, and pretty playthings to all the young of his race did not seem a difficult undertaking at all. But every year more and more children were born into the world, and these, when they grew up, began spreading slowly over all the face of the earth, seeking new homes, so that Santa Claus found each year that his journeys must extend farther and farther from the Laughing Valley, and that the packs of toys must be made larger and ever larger. So at length he took counsel with his fellow immortals how his work might keep pace with the increasing number of children that none might be neglected. And the immortals were so greatly interested in his labours that they gladly rendered him their assistance. Ak gave him his man Kilter, the silent and swift, and the Nook Prince gave him Peter, who was more crooked and less surly than any of his brothers, and the Ryle Prince gave him Neuter, the sweetest-tempered Ryle ever known, and the Fairy Queen gave him Whisk, that tiny, mischievous but lovable fairy who knows today almost as many children as Santa Claus himself does. With these people to help make the toys and to keep his house in order and to look after the sledge and the harness, Santa Claus found it much easier to prepare his yearly load of gifts, and his days began to follow, one upon another, smoothly and pleasantly. Yet after a few generations his worries were renewed, for it was remarkable how the number of people continued to grow, and how many more children there were every year to be served. When the people filled all the cities and lands of one country, they wandered into another part of the world, and the men cut down the trees in many of the great forests that had been ruled by Ak, and with the wood they built new cities, and where the forests had been there were fields of grain and herds of browsing cattle. You might think that the master woodsman would rebel at the loss of his forests, but no. The wisdom of Ak was mighty and far-seeing. The world was made for men, he said to Santa Claus, and I have but guarded the forests until men needed them for their use. I am glad my strong trees can furnish shelter for men's weak bodies and warm them through the cold winters, but I hope they will not cut down all the trees, for mankind needs the shelter of the woods in summer as much as the warmth of blazing logs in the winter. And however crowded the world may grow, I do not think men will ever come to Bursey, nor the great black forest, nor the wooded wilderness of Braz, unless they seek their shades for pleasure, and not to destroy their giant trees. By and by, people made ships from the tree trunks, and crossed over oceans and built cities in far lands. But the oceans made little difference to the journeys of Santa Claus, his reindeer sped over the waters as swiftly as over the lands, and his sledge headed from east to west and followed in the wake of the sun, so that as the earth rolled slowly over, 
Santa Claus had all of twenty-four hours to encircle it each Christmas Eve, and the speedy reindeer enjoyed these wonderful journeys more and more. So year after year, and generation after generation, and century after century, the world grew older, and the people became more numerous, and the labors of Santa Claus steadily increased. The fame of his good deeds spread to every household where children dwelt, and all the little ones loved him dearly, and the fathers and mothers honored him for the happiness he had given them when they too were young, and the aged grandsires and granddams remembered him with tender gratitude and blessed his name. Chapter 3 The Deputies of Santa Claus However, there was one evil following in the path of civilization that caused Santa Claus a vast amount of trouble before he discovered a way to overcome it. But fortunately, it was the last trial he was forced to undergo. One Christmas Eve, when his reindeer had leapt to the top of a new building, Santa was surprised to find that the chimney had been built much smaller than usual. But he had no time to think about it just then. So he drew in his breath and made himself as small as possible and slid down the chimney. I ought to be at the bottom by this time, he thought, as he continued to slip downward. But no fireplace of any sort met his view. And by and by he reached the very end of the chimney, which was in the cellar. This is odd, he reflected, much puzzled by the experience. If there's no fireplace, what on earth is the chimney good for? Then he began to climb out again, and found it hard work, the space being so small. And on his way up, he noticed a thin, round pipe sticking through the side of the chimney. But he could not guess what it was for. Finally, he reached the roof and said to the reindeer, There's no need of my going down that chimney, for I could find no fireplace through which to enter the house. I fear the children who live there must go without their playthings this Christmas. Then he drove on but soon came to another new house with a very small chimney. This caused Santa Claus to shake his head doubtfully, but he tried the chimney nonetheless and found it exactly like the other. Moreover, he nearly stuck fast in the narrow flue and tore his jacket trying to get out again. So, although he came to several such chimneys that night, he did not venture to descend into any more of them. "'What in the world are people thinking to build such useless chimneys?' he exclaimed. In all the years I've travelled with my reindeer, I've never seen the like before. True enough, but Santa Claus had not then discovered that stoves had been invented and were fast coming into use. When he did not find it out, he wondered how the builders of those houses could have so little consideration for him, when they knew very well it was his custom to climb down chimneys and enter houses by way of the fireplaces. Perhaps the men who built those houses had outgrown their own love for toys and were indifferent whether Santa Claus called on their children or not. Whatever the explanation might be, the poor children were forced to bear the burden of grief and disappointment. The following year, Santa Claus found more and more of the new-fashioned chimneys that had no fireplaces, and the next year still more. The third year, so numerous had the narrow chimneys become, he even had a few toys left in his sledge that he was unable to give away, because he could not get to the children. The matter had now become so serious that it worried the good man greatly, and he decided to talk it over with Kilter and Peter and Neuter and Whisk. Kilter already knew something about it, 
for it had been his duty to run around to all the houses just before Christmas and gather up the notes and letters to Santa Claus that the children had written, telling what they wished put in their stockings or hung on their Christmas trees. But Kilter was a silent fellow and seldom spoke what he saw in the cities and villages. The others were very indignant. Those people act as if they don't wish their children to be made happy, said the sensible Peter in a vexed tone. The idea of shutting out such a generous friend to their little ones. But it is my intention to make children happy whether their parents wish it or not, said Claus. Years ago, when I first began making toys, children were even more neglected by their parents than they are now. So I have learned to pay no attention to thoughtless or selfish parents, but to consider only the longings of the children. You are right, my master, said Newter the Ryle. Many children would lack a friend if you did not consider them and try to make them happy. Then, declared the laughing whisk, we must abandon any thought of using these new-fashioned chimneys, but become burglars and break into the houses some other way. What way? asked Santa Claus. Why, walls of brick and wood and plaster are nothing to fairies. I can easily pass through them whenever I wish, and so can Peter and Neuter and Kilter. Is that not so, comrades? I often pass through the walls when I gather up the letters, said Kilter, and that was a long speech for him, and so surprised Peter and Neuter that their big round eyes nearly popped out of their heads. Therefore, continued the fairy, you may as well take us with you on your next journey, and when we come to one of those houses with stoves instead of fireplaces, we will distribute the toys to the children without the need of using a chimney. That seems like a good plan to me, replied Claus, well pleased at having solved the problem. We will try it next year. And that is how the fairy, the pixie, the nook, and the ryle all rode in the sledge with their master the following Christmas Eve. And they had no trouble at all entering the new-fashioned houses and leaving toys for the children that live in them. And their deft services not only relieved Santa of much labor, but enabled him to complete his own work more quickly than usual, so that the merry party found themselves at home with an empty sledge a full hour before daybreak. The only drawback to the journey was that the mischievous whisk persisted in tickling the reindeer with a long feather to see them jump, and Santa Claus found it necessary to watch him every minute and to tweak his long ears once or twice to make him behave himself. But taken altogether, the trip was a great success, and to this day the four little folk always accompany Santa Claus in his yearly ride, and help him in the distribution of his gifts. But the indifference of parents, which had so annoyed the good saint, did not continue for very long, and Santa Claus soon found they were really anxious he should visit their homes on Christmas Eve and leave presents for their children. So to lighten his task, which was becoming very difficult indeed, old Santa decided to ask the parents to assist him. "'Get your Christmas trees all ready for my coming,' he said to them. Then I shall be able to leave the presents without loss of time, and you can put them on the trees when I am gone. And to others he said, See that the children's stockings are hung up in readiness for my coming, and then I can fill them as quick as a wink. And often when parents were kind and good-natured, Santa Claus would simply fling down his package of gifts and leave the fathers and mothers to fill the stockings after he had departed away in his sledge. I will make all loving parents my deputies, cried the jolly old fellow, and they shall help me do my work, 
for in this way I shall save many precious minutes, and few children need to be neglected for lack of time to visit them. Besides carrying around the big packs at his swift-flying sledge, old Santa began to send great heaps of toys to the toy shops, so that if parents wanted larger supplies for their children, they could easily get them. And if any children were by chance missed by Santa Claus on his yearly rounds, they could go to the toy shops and get enough to make them happy and contented. For the loving friend of the little ones decided that no child, if he could help it, should long for toys in vain. And the toy shops also proved convenient whenever a child fell ill and needed a new toy to amuse it. And sometimes, on birthdays, the fathers and mothers go to the toy shops and get pretty gifts for their children in honor of the happy event. Perhaps you will now understand how, in spite of the bigness of the world, Santa Claus is able to supply all the children with beautiful gifts. To be sure, the old gentleman is rarely seen in these days, but it is not because he tries to keep out of sight, I assure you. Santa is the same loving friend of children that he was in the old days, the friend that used to play and romp with them by the hour. And I know he would love to do the same now if he had the time, but you see, he is so busy all year making toys, and so heard on that one night when he visits our homes with his packs, that he comes and goes among us like a flash, and it is almost impossible to catch a glimpse of him. And although there are millions and millions more children in the world than there used to be, Santa Claus has never been known to complain of their increasing numbers. The more the merrier! Ho, ho, ho! He cries with his jolly laugh. And the only difference to him is the fact that his little workmen have to make their busy fingers fly faster every year to satisfy the demands of so many little ones. In all this world, there is nothing so beautiful as a happy child, says the good old Santa Claus. And if he had his way, the children would all be beautiful, for all would be happy. End of part three. End of the life and adventures of Santa Claus.